Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by my friend at Garden Organic, Chris Collins. We bring you practical gardening tips the organic way. So, what have we got for you this month? You can sort of smell it in the air or out on the balcony this morning. You get that really fresh autumnal feel. While we're talking about making leaf mould, tell us how you'd be using it. Last month in your podcast, I learned how to save beans and pea seeds from my plant. I wonder, can I do the same with my tomatoes? Have your worms got names? Um, That'll take a bit too long to go through them all. Okay, so we've got seed saving, how to make leaf mould and the joys of owning a wormery. If you've ever thought about making or buying a wormery, then listen on. You'll find out so much more about it here. Did you know you can buy compost making worms from the Organic Gardening Catalogue? Just search online for theorganiccatalogue.com who are, by the way, our lovely sponsors. And you'll find everything you need for your organic gardening needs. And if you're a member of Garden Organic, you'll get 10% off. That's theorganiccatalogue.com. The second half of the podcast takes perhaps a more serious turn. I meet Keith Tyrrell, Chief Executive of Pan UK. He is tireless in his fight against dangerous pesticides. And it's a hard-hitting interview which includes some shocking facts. But first, let's join Chris in the virtual potting shed. Hey, Chris, it's nice to speak to you again. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm very well, actually. Thank you, Chris. And just loving the fact that it's October. You know, summer's really done now. It's really finished. I don't know about you, but the weather isn't great. But I think October is actually quite an exciting month in the garden. You can sort of smell it in the air or out on the balcony this morning. You get that really fresh autumnal feel. The trees are changing colour. I absolutely adore it. And it is an exciting time in the garden. You can sort of do loads of stuff you haven't been able to do through the growing months. And I love autumn. It's like an old friend coming along. I think as a gardener, seasons are like bumping into an old friend, aren't they? There's a real feeling of familiarity to it. Ah, you, you put it so well. I think perhaps the first thing we ought to talk about then is the soil. Now, the soil, as we know, is the most vital part of the organic garden, well, of any garden, but particularly in an organic garden, you've got to look after your soil. And Round about now is when you should be thinking about how to protect it. It's going to get a lot of winter rain. It's going to get frost. It's going to get bad conditions. And the soil life within it is probably beginning to slow down because the soil itself is beginning to get colder. So how do we protect that? Well, for me, I'm covering it. I was too late to sow some green manures in some areas. So I'm going to cover the soil and I'm going to use whatever organic material I have at hand. It can be old grass cuttings it can be straw from the hen house even wet leaves what about you chris yeah it's quite it's funny that this time of year you sort of all these gaps start appearing you've had summer months of allotments being really full and loads going on and then gradually it starts to empty out i think some of the old boys on my allotment site tend to, tend to keep it busy all year round and i think that's a real art form isn't it i mean the best soil is the soil that's working isn't it really but like you say there's lots of empty gaps i have been quite clever i have got my mustard uh, green manures in i put them in a month ago so they're doing okay oh, well I will put, yes i was kind of a bit organized i like to plant as much as i can there's broad beans in there i've got brassicas in there, but I do have gaps and I'll do a couple of things with them I I put my pecs down you know I'm a big my pecs user because of the weeds I have problems I have on the allotment and that's kind of like a porous fibre which I use over and over again that gets chipped around I'll also put down cardboard as well there's a lot of boxes lying around you see them out solid shops I'll lay them over the top as well yeah cardboard's a good one you're right there's a lot of that around and if you put the organic matter under the cardboard and then weight it down on top with more organic matter you are building up this lovely deep rich soil that's going to be kicking into life come next spring when everything warms up and you want to plant into it and also you have the added advantage if you do that is your weeds that start coming through your perennial weeds are much easier to pull out because that soil's lovely and crumbly and, uh, and there's air pour in it and it just really makes that pulling out the roots of it easier to do really so that kind of helps a lot I think before it's too late, though, make a note of where everything was growing, particularly in the veg patch. This is a really good practice to get into because next year you're going to want to rotate where you grow your crops. It's not a good idea to put potatoes or brassicas in the same place year after year because you could well build up some disease in the soil. Yeah, that's true. And it's good organic practice, isn't it? Because you will get things like blight, potato blight, that kind of stuff sitting in the soil if you grow the same crop year after year. I have a little trick. I call it the shuffle and I tend to write draw it down on a piece of paper so I bought an old cork board I put that up in the shed I have this year's little plan I'll then do another one and replace that and just so you're knocking everything round and not growing the same crop twice and obviously different plants have different nutritional requirements as well 
Yeah, that's very true. And, and you will find that you don't have to use so much compost next year. If, for instance, where you put compost down this year for your hungry plants like brassicas, next year, why don't you put in carrots or beetroot there? Because they don't need that extra bit of compost next spring. You can save that precious compost to put it on the area where you're going to be doing your brassicas. It sounds complicated, but just you're gradually shifting things around. I like the idea of your corkboard, Chris. I actually have a garden notebook, which is something I inherited from my grandmother. And I love those quiet moments when you're sitting inside, it's pouring with rain outside, you can't get out. I, I, I fill it my notebook, I lovingly draw each raised bed, I sometimes even illustrate it. But it's kind of making me think about the garden even when I'm not out there. I think it's a big part of the garden psyche and also it's great fun to do, isn't it? I've got a picture you there now with your notepad doing some drawings and I just think that that makes it all quite exciting. And also you look back later, like you mentioned your grandma there, you look back at stuff, don't you? You look back at gardening. It's, it's quite a lot of nostalgia and it's nice to capture that, I think, because it's a very personal thing. Yeah. And let's face it, October is a month of nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing I'm doing, Chris, is collecting leaves like mad. I have two big oak trees which grow very close to where I grow, and there's so many leaves, and I'm making leaf mould. Yeah, it's what I call the bonanza, when all this lovely natural material falls out of the sky, and of course... The organic gardener can utilise it. That's what we're good at, utilising natural resources, utilising nature. I turn a big leaf mould collector. Obviously, I have a balcony at home. It's not really practical to me to store leaves on there. So I'll take them down the allotment. I'll put them in a nice big bay made out of chicken wire and wooden posts. And obviously, later on in the future, that's good seed compost for us, isn't it? Because it's great for using it for that. That's so true. And what happens is when the leaves begin to rot down, which they do very slowly. And I have to say, the big thing about making leaf mould is patience. It can take up to a year, sometimes two years. But when the leaves rot down, they become almost like a compost. It's not as rich. It's not as nutrient rich as a compost. But it comes this lovely, dark, crumbly stuff that you can, as you say, use as a potting mix. Or you can use it as a soil conditioner. It'll help break up your soil if it's heavy. If you've got a heavy clay, turn in some leaf mould into that heavy clay and you're beginning to get a good structure to your soil. Yeah, it's great stuff and it's free and it, you know, there's lots of it about this time of year. So, and if you think also a good point, if you're, um, you're thinking about getting some leaf mould, you can collect it from parks, maybe not go into wild areas, Sarah. No, don't, don't, don't get it from woodland because obviously the woodland is a natural area and the trees need that leaf mould for their own growing cycle. And I would say also probably don't pick it up from under hedges because hedges are similar. They need that rotting down material to feed their root system. But, Yes, park. <laughs> uh, speaking speaking as a, as a man who used to work for the parks, uh, the leaf raking season in October was not one of my fondest memories. So anyone who comes along and helps themselves to some leaves off the lawn are doing the, the gardener a favour, probably. Everybody's a winner. <laughs> I think also for an organic gardener, there's something very satisfying about being part of that cycle of growth and decay. You're tapping into nature's natural cycle and using the benefits that she can give you. I, I love that. Okay, now the other most important thing that you're probably doing this month, or I hope you're doing, is collecting seeds. Um, I think that by saving your own seed, you've got a double whammy. One, obviously you're saving money because you've then got seeds for next year for free. But also you're saving from a plant which you know has been grown organically and within your own plot and therefore it enjoys your particular growing conditions. So if you can save the seed, whether it's a poppy, a calendula, or whether it's a leek, whatever, you're, you're doing good organic practice, but you're also, it's a win-win. Wouldn't you agree, Chris? Yeah, definitely. And you've got to remember a lot of the seeds you buy in garden centres have probably been imported from China, so there's probably a heavy carbon footprint on them. And why, you know, if you've got a decent, like, I, a good examples of the heritage seed varieties we we produce a garden organic. I grow quite a lot of those. And uh, I have a bean called John's Long Pod. I'm saving the seed on that. And that Sorry, is that with John's Long John's Pod? John's Long Pod, yeah. I love it. <laughs> Carefully <laughs> say that. And, uh, yeah. But it grows really well on my allotment. It thrives there. 
there. So I'm very keen to collect that seed. And I'll just cut the plants down and I'll hang them upside down in the shed near my cork board. And then I'll, I'll cut the seed off that. I have a little lettuce called tennis ball, which does really well there. And I just bend over the seed heads and I tap them out. When they're ready to go, uh, to go, they'll just fall into my palm. And also, I'm a bit of a gorilla gardener, Sarah. I've got an area outside my my block, which is a car park. And there, there's a bank there that no one really uses. The gardeners are supposed to look after it. They turn up twice a year, cut things down and leave again. That's the way it is now. But I've started just throwing the calendula seeds in there, throwing the poppy seeds in there, throwing the cornflower seeds in there. And it's building up over time. And it's a very subtle way to garden. And the pollinators, the bees love it. And it just looks really good this year. I'm well chuffed with it. Oh, Chris, I love that idea. And I think the important thing to remember is the seed has to be dry when you collect it. Damp seed will easily rot and go off. So make sure it's dry when you collect it, which is presumably why you're hanging your beans upside down, is to get those beans totally dry before you save them. Um, And then also when you store your seed, make sure that it's very, very dry. Coolness helps, but definitely dryness. Um, It's funny you mentioned about the gorilla gardening. I've got my own little gorilla gardeners and they're called poppies. And these poppies are growing everywhere. They scatter themselves all around my raised veg, my my veg patches. And I don't mind. I love them being there. But I have to say I'm quite rigorous about sorting out which ones I want to keep and which (laughs) ones I don't. There's some pale lilac ones. Don't like them. But there's a gorgeous double headed sort of lipstick coloured poppy. So I'm waiting till those poppy seed heads are quite dry and I can hear the seed rattle inside. I stick my thumb into the seed head and scatter those poppy seeds all round. It reminds me a little bit of uh, that story and, and the me as well, that Gertrude Jekyll sort of approach of letting it all be free and natural. And that's very good for the wildlife. And the garden is very mixed and it's a good organic practice because you're not growing too much of the one thing. You get a lot of diversity in there. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Heritage Seed, Chris, because it's a good time to talk about the Heritage Seed Library, which which is run by Garden Organic. And of course, if you join the Heritage Seed Library, then you will be able to get some of these gorgeous varieties, which you can no longer buy in shops. I mean, you mentioned John's Long Pod. I said that carefully. But there are other ones as well. So go on the website, the Garden Organic website, see what you can find about the Heritage Seed Library. And maybe, maybe this could be a nice Christmas present for yourself or for somebody else. I think it'd be an excellent one. I remember that, that whole lovely feeling of the cycle, you know, seed, growing a plant, letting it flower, letting the seed pods mature, collecting the seed and doing it all again the following year really is an essence bit of organic gardening. And you know, Chris, you and I will shortly and all too shortly, we'll be talking about how to sow those seeds. And uh, I love that. You know, we can hold people's hand if they've never done it before, how to sow them and how to get success from them. Um, Chris, this is also the time to be moving plants in the herbaceous border, is it not? It certainly is. I mean, I, I love this time of year for one big main reason. And that is the time to move stuff around, to change things. So on my allotment, I've got quite a lot of herbaceous plants and they're kind of scattered here and there. I've been a bit willy nilly with them and I want to dig them up, divide them. And I want to put them in corridors down the sides of my raised, raised beds. And that look quite organised. It's just the fact that you, this time of year, the soil's still fairly warm. So it's the best time to plant and replant because the soil's warm. And that means they'll put on root growth to get the roots down. It means you've got a good plant over the winter and it'll get a nice strong start in the spring. I also think there are some borders which you just know didn't work very well for whatever reason. And I think now is a good time to think, okay, let's get creative. Let's be ruthless and start all over again. And if you dig it over, keep the plants you want to keep that perform well, but get rid of everything else. You know, life's too short to nurse a sickly penstemon. Just get rid of it and then think about what you would like there instead. Build up that soil, replant and next spring you're going to have some lovely surprises. It really is the time of year to move things around, take a good look, maybe sit down with a pen and paper, see if you what you want, plan a little bit. But it's very exciting. I like this time of year for that one reason. Yeah. Can I tell you something else which is exciting, Chris? And it's it's about mowing lawns. In fact, it's about not mowing lawns. I have a grassy bank just outside the house and I haven't been able to mow it this summer since July. And I am amazed by what's grown up. The flowers in it just have seeded themselves or have been there in the soil waiting. There's white campion, there's common storksbill, there's oxide daisy, there's cat's ear. It's just a thing of beauty just because I didn't mow it. Yeah, and it's also incredibly valuable for pollinators, isn't it? We know our bee populations are under pressure and it's, uh, and it's such a vital source. A lawn doesn't have to be 
just something flat, you know, and I think maybe mix it up a little bit. It's the time of year to put bulbs in. Why not naturalise some daft bulbs in your lawn? They always look amazing. Just cut the turf, roll it back very gently, plant your bulbs in and roll it forward and they'll come through in the spring and look spectacular against that green sort of area behind it. I'm glad you mentioned bulbs, Chris, because I'm going to yet again bang the drum for organic bulbs. Now, it's all too easy to go out and buy some bulbs, cheapest chips from the garden centre. But I think if you just think a little bit about what conditions they've been grown in they probably have been treated quite heavily with chemicals yeah i mean they soak them in chemicals to make sure they don't rot before they get into the shop so there are quite a lot of chemical involved and they've probably been grown in a massive massive monoculture i mean i don't know if you've ever been to the netherlands or flown over but most of the netherlands is under plastic or glass now and that's to produce plants for the market and they're not necessarily produced organically And we want to support organic growers. Now, if you go online, there are a small number, a very small number of UK distributors of organic bulbs. The ones that I found have mostly got their bulbs, funnily enough, from the Netherlands. But at least I know that the bulbs have been grown to organic standards. And that to me is very, very important. They are a bit more expensive. I accept that. So I'm buying fewer bulbs this year but I'm making sure they're organic. Of course, bulbs are one of those exciting things about autumn as well, aren't they? My balcony will get the treatment, all my hanging baskets, my pots, and I will, what I do, call trifle planting. So I'll put the smaller bulbs on the top, the galanthus and the crocus, and underneath that I'll put the daffs, and underneath that the tulips, and then I'll put some big alliums, and you literally get this long period of colour from right early spring right the way through to the first knockings of summer. They really are an amazing sight. I love the way you call it trifle. It's such a a sweet image, Chris. (laughs) I had a question from someone who's very new to gardening. She's a lockdown gardener. She's absolutely loving it. But she has a very small town garden. So a lot of what she grows is in pots. And she contacted me earlier this week saying, I've planted all my daffodils and they're deep down in the pots. But I've now got a lot of bare soil on top. She said, can I put anything on top of that? Can I put some veg in on top or some salad plant? What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I always overplant my bulbs. So I tend to go for what almost like the classical spring bedding display, if you like. I'll put in pansy. Forget me nots are a big favourite of mine. You can even put wallflowers in. Actually, also use rainbow chard is a great overplant. You can even grow a bit of lettuce, a bit of come again, cut and come again salad as well. So don't be afraid to plant over your bulbs. They look spectacular when they burst through that foliage in the springtime as well. And you don't think you run the risk of the bulb rotting because you're watering the plants on top? Well, that's all down to compost. This is quite important because people can skimp on compost. If you go to the garden centre or you go to a DIY store and you buy, say, three bags or a tenner, that's not for pots, not for growing. So make sure you buy a decent peat-free organic compost because that will be designed to drain properly and you will have no issues with rotting bulbs at all. Ah, that's really helpful. And I must say I was thrilled that somebody who's so new to gardening and is so keen and, and has so many questions, if you too are new to gardening and you've just taken it up year this year because of lockdown or whatever do get in touch i'm afraid it's a bit old school you have to write an email it's podcast at gardenorganic.org.uk but get in touch let us know what your thoughts are have you had any great successes have you had any disasters we'd love to hear from you yeah we certainly would and it's great you know if there's a, one good thing to come out of COVID, covid and it's this strange time we've been through is that we might have a new army of gardeners and that can only be a positive thing Okay, Chris, so don't disappear. We're going to go straight into opening the podcast mailbag. And we're joined by Anton. Hi, Anton. Hello. We're also joined by Lisa this month, who's taken over from Hannah. Hi, Sarah. Yes, my first question for you. Um, I heard you talk about leaf mould earlier, and one of our listeners has asked, can I put any leaves into my leaf mould, and what about the ones with black spots on them? This is probably a question for you, Chris. I'll start it off. I think I will have one word of warning. Most leaves are fine, especially oak and beech and the smaller leaves, but watch out for thick waxy leaves like the plane tree because they will take a lot longer to break down in fact at Westminster Abbey where I was um, head gardener we had a lot of big plane trees there of course being in central London and those leaves I've dug up some that were 10 years old and they hadn't started to rot so if you get that really thick um, waxy cuticle on the leaf 
be aware they'll take longer to break down. As for the, the moulds or the spots you get on leaves, well, I'll pass over to Anton for that because I know that he'll have a few things to say. Um, well, there's a number of diseases which affect tree leaves. And um, perhaps one of the ones that people see quite often is the tar spot on sycamore leaves. And that disease isn't actually that harmful. So I wouldn't be too worried about putting that into my leaf mould unless it's built up to really devastating levels. But generally, I, as a principle, leaf mould does not get that hot during the process of making leaf mould. So I would avoid putting diseased leaves in because unlike composting, which gets a lot hotter, the leaf mould process is a fairly cool process and you will be spreading diseases around. Ah, so you're, you're saying that perhaps we ought to sift through and sort our leaves. I've always been a little bit more cavalier than that, Anton, and just hurled them all in kept them moist and hoped that they would all break down, which they do eventually. Yeah, I think you just need to be a bit wary, particularly some of the, some of the diseases um, on, on fruit trees, um, the sort of leaf miner on chestnuts as well. They may survive in the sort of cool, damp conditions of a leaf mould pile. Chris, you mentioned uh, leaves which take a long time to break down, and certainly the evergreen leaves do. But I thought it'd be interesting to look at the ones that are much quicker and also some of the difference between them so for instance let's get technical it's the lignin inside the leaf this is the structure of the leaf this is the bit that's tough and takes time the fiber that takes time to break down and the leaves which are higher in lignin tend to be lower in nitrogen and calcium so that's beech birch hornbeam and oak but then there are leaves which are lower in lignin i.e they will break down faster and they tend to be higher in calcium and nitrogen which are good for your plants and that includes ash cherry elm maple poplar willow these are all brilliant for making leaf mold from and chris while we're talking about making leaf mould, tell us how you'd be using it. Well, certainly I'd try to be using it for, for sowing seeds because obviously it's quite low in nutrient and it's a good peat alternative, really. I'd probably mix it with a bit of silver sand as well. Yeah, I've, I've definitely done that. and made sure I sieved it first because it can yeah. still be quite large in particles. But certainly I'd be using it for that. I would. I kind of, saw it, see it as also quite, if I had excessive amounts of it, I would probably use it as a mulch maybe for young trees, trees that are establishing that kind of thing. I mean, it is... Very multi-purpose. You've got a very natural resource there. I'm actually putting mine over my beds. Uh, we talked about it earlier, about when you've got winter beds that are empty, if you haven't been able to fill them with green manures or if you haven't got any crops growing in them, I spread leaf mould over the top of the bed just to protect the soil. And the nutrients washing mm. through. It's a very good use of it. And like, if you can get it, I mean, a really good idea. Why not go out in your community? I know they do it in my part. And see if you can get um, a leaf mould committee together. Put in those stakes, put some chicken wire around, make a couple of big bays. Put the leaves in there, then all the all your community, your local parks people can help themselves to leaf mould. I think it's a really good idea to do a bit of community gardening. And look, it is. I was right earlier. It is a bonanza. We've got leaves coming on mass scale very shortly. Let's make the most of them. Yeah, I agree. And also, I guess the principle is be patient. It's not going to happen quickly. I think you wait it for a good year or possibly even two years to get that lovely, dark, crumbly stuff. All the best things are worth waiting for, Sarah. Yes, Chris, thank you. <laughs> We've also been contacted by another listener who says, last month in your podcast, I learned how to save beans and pea seeds from my plant. I wonder, can I do the same with my tomatoes? Anton, this would be a good one for you. Yeah, I would say that tomato are pretty easy to save seeds from. Not quite as easy as beans, but they are pretty easy. A little bit more of an involved process. So one of the things you need to do is when you remove the seeds from the tomatoes, you need to make sure that they're ripe tomatoes and that they've come off healthy plants as well. You need to get the sort of there's a sort of gel around the seeds of a tomato, which inhibits their germination. If you think about it, the seeds are in a damp environment in the tomato, so they need something to stop them germinating. So you need to get this gel off. And the easiest way is to put the seeds into a jar of water and leave them for about four or five days and they actually start fermenting. Don't be worried if you see some mould growing on, on the top. That's totally harmless. It's, it's not a problem. And then you take the seeds out and then it's important to get them dry as quickly as possible because otherwise there is a tendency that they might start to germinate. So you can dry them on kitchen paper or, or toilet paper or paper towels and they will stick to the paper, but that doesn't actually matter. And then you want to 
keep them in a in a nice dry cool place after that Anton it's interesting that you use the jam jar technique I've always done something slightly different which is to scrape the seeds out and put them in a sieve and then wash them under running water just keep washing those seeds until you can see that and feel that the gel has disappeared through the sieve I was just wondering Anton actually I um I've got obviously the very nice heritage varieties that um garden organic so lovingly look after but I do grow the old f1 hybrids as well to be honest like I have tumbler on my balcony which is a real giver it's given me so much fruit this year I think we're like most F1s, which is like a crossbreed, isn't it, between two different parents, a gardening-made variety, if you like. Will they, will they revert? A lot of flowers we grow as F1s tend to revert, which means they won't come out as true as the plant that you took the seed from. Yeah, that's true. Like like you say, um, F1s have got two different parents, and so when you save seeds from them, you get to see what their parents are like. You don't get what the original product was. You get a mixture of all the different characteristics. Just for curiosity, I saved some seeds from an F1 hybrid. I saved some from some sun gold seeds a couple of years ago, and I planted them this year. And I got a right old mixture of fruits coming out. I got um, some red ones. I got some orange ones and some yellow ones. I have to say, <laughs> all of them are really nice well, so I think I might be saving seed from them and seeing what happens next year. Perhaps not the conventional way of doing things, but uh, it's kept me amused. I found it quite interesting. I, I, I quite like the idea of nature taking it back, taking back over. You know, it's like we sort of step in and cross stuff, and, uh, and then nature kind of goes, well, actually, I'm the boss. <laughs> yeah, I agree, Chris. And I also think as an organic gardener, I, I do try and avoid the F1s. I'm not, I, I would prefer to use something that's been either open-pollinated or something that I've saved the seed from myself. But that's a fascinating story, Anton. I love that. And finally, we have an email from a Garden Organic member who says, I've read about a wormery and I'd like to get one. As where I live, I don't have space for a compost heap. Can you help? Um, so Anton, you be our in-house worm expert. Um, can you suggest how to make a wormery or the best type of wormery to buy? OK, well, first I better say what a wormery is. Put simply, a wormery is a box full of worms. <laughs> These worms <laughs> will um, turn your food waste into a really useful compost product. I have to say these are slightly different worms to your earthworms. These are the brandling worms or tiger worms, as they're sometimes known. They're much darker in colour than your pink earthworms. And these are the ones that you also find in your compost heap. So that's that's one of the things to be aware of. You can't just take worms from the soil and put them in a, in a box. Um, you can make your own wormery. It's a little bit involved. It needs different layers of, and you can make them out of stacking boxes. You will also need to drill a lot of holes between the layers. There's quite a lot of information online how to do this, and I can't go into the full details of doing this. Or you can buy wormeries online. They generally cost about 90 to 120 pounds mark. Just to say about a wormery, it won't convert all your food waste into compost. You won't be able to fit that amount in. But what it will do is convert what you put in very quickly in about sort of three months you'll get this very rich compost product out which is extremely useful for putting on your house plants so it's great for somebody without a garden because basically you've got this little box in your kitchen you're putting some of your food waste in and out is coming something which is great for your house plants. Anton I'm slightly intrigued that something it sounds like it's just like a plastic box with some worms in it should cost so much money is there something more complex about the structure of it is it is it more than one plastic box how does it work? Okay so typical wormery has got three layers to it sometimes they've got more than that a layer at the bottom which I call this the bathroom it collects all the, the sort of worm we or, or <laughs> some people call it worm tea or worm wine depending on how you look at it and then just above that you've got a layer which has got a little grid on it which I call that the living room that's where the where the worms hang out and that's where the sort of compost is made and then in the top layer you've got a dining room which um, you put all your food waste into and the worms because in their natural environment they like to go up onto the surface and um, they will go upwards to feed on this top layer of food scraps or whatever you put in. It, it is a fairly complicated structure just because it's got quite a lot of holes in it needs ventilation and also it often has a tap on the bottom as well. 
you can make one yourself, certainly for a lot less money, but you do need to make sure that you make it properly to make sure it's got enough ventilation and that it drains properly. Because after all, we're talking about live animals, aren't we? So you need to take care of them. It's not just about the compost that's coming or the wine tea that's coming out. I was just going to ask, is there any particular items that we should be careful about putting in a wormery? I know that they can be quite partial to a banana skin or an apple core, something like that. Um, are there any particular things that break down quicker than others? I would say they they particularly, like you say, particularly like banana skins and apple cores. They, like if you put an apple core in there, they will all <laughs> gravitate towards it. The things that they don't like so much, um, avoid putting citrus peel in and they're not so keen on onions as well and things like chilies. Anton, have your worms got names? <laughs> um, that'll take a bit too long to go through them all, but um... <laughs> I think uh, I think the description of a, of a bathroom, a, a front room, of the dining room is the best description I've ever worthy <laughs> ever. I'd say a full marks. It's really, Anton, really good. The Anton household, it's great. <laughs> it's brilliant. I'm just going to um, ask one question because I did. I have a balcony and I top dressed with wormery, in, but I did have some issues with temperature because I'm south facing. What's kind of best temperature to have the wormery in if you're placing it outside, Anton? Because I know mine tended to get a bit too hot. To be fair, that's a very very good point. Yeah, a wormery does not need to get too hot, and you shouldn't be putting it in direct sunlight. Otherwise, you you're ending up baking the worms basically. And also they don't like freezing cold. So in the in the winter, I would be bringing it in because if you think about it in their natural environment, they are able to go down a little bit deeper or be surrounded by a lot of leaf litter. Whereas if you've got them in a small box, it's going to lose its temperature very quickly. Well, there we go. That could well be a Christmas present in the offing. Thank you, Anton. That's really helpful. And um, thanks, everybody. Lisa, was that everything? That's everything. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much. Very, very enjoyable that was. So now I urge you to grab a cuppa and settle down to listen to our interview this month. But before you do, I'll just mention that the Garden Organic website is where you'll find information on nearly everything you've heard about. Easy steps to seed saving, how to make leaf mould and all the tips you need to manage your precious soil. So go to gardenorganic.org.uk. Now, a pause and take breath. It's time for our guest interview, who this month is Keith Tyrrell. Keith is Chief Executive of PAN UK, a small but hugely important organisation which campaigns against the use of dangerous pesticides. It's not an easy listening topic. The subject matter is serious, literally deadly serious in some cases. And you'll hear phrases such as regulatory framework and off-target organisms. But stick with it for the full 20 minutes and I guarantee you'll be fired to take action. Keith, I'm going to ask you straight away for the listener who doesn't know what PAN UK does. First of all, what does PAN stand for and what is your work? So PAN stands for Pesticide Action Network and in a proper Ron Seal moment, it does exactly what it says on the tin. We work on pesticides, we're action oriented and we're part of a global network of grassroots organisation that works to tackle the problems of pesticides. And specifically within the UK, what sort of work do you do? So in the UK, a lot of the work that we do is around um, advocacy, campaigning, um, trying to open people's and policymakers' eyes to the problems of pesticides, which are often hidden. Tell me a little bit more about the problems, Keith. Well, over the past couple of decades, we've seen a massive increase, actually, in the amount of pesticides that are, are, are used in UK agriculture. And that's having massive impact on, on our environment, most obviously. I mean, we've all heard the, the, the really alarming stories about biodiversity loss, insect Armageddon. We've all seen with our own eyes, you know, the, the way that wildlife has declined um, in UK countryside. And while... There's no question that the, the causes of these declines are multiple and, and, and complex. I think it's pretty obvious that our overuse and over-reliance on synthetic pesticides is one of the issues that is causing these problems. I'm also guessing it's not just the environment that pesticides cause problems. Um, it's also with our own health, isn't it? Definitely. We, you know, let's face it, pesticides are poisons. They are designed to kill things. I mean, ideally, they're designed to kill the pests, whether that's an insect pest or whether it's a fungal pest or even if it's a weed, if it's herbicide. 
But actually, the problem is many of these these chemicals have implications for human health. I'm, I'm particularly worried about people who use pesticides because they get higher doses. But there's also issues around people who eat foods which are contaminated with pesticides and have residues. Um, it's often touted that the UK and EU regulatory framework is the toughest in the world, and that's probably true, but there are still some really big problems with it. But so what actually, are the shortcomings, do you think? I mean, one thing that, that springs to mind is the fact that pesticides are authorised on a single pesticide basis. So each pesticide that is that is approved goes through a quite a, a rigorous regulatory process through all sorts of tests and so on. But that does not really reflect the reality of how pesticides are used or how or how people are exposed to pesticides in their daily life. So forgive me, let me just scroll back here. So when you say that each individual pesticide is scrutinised and passed or not passed as fit for use, what you're saying is that's the chemical component of the pesticide. But as we know, most uh, pesticides that are used by farmers or even by gardeners, it's, it's a formulation, isn't it, where a number of chemicals are combined for maximum effect. That's right. The formulation is the product that you buy off the shelf. It's, and of course, that formulation isn't regulated. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of glyphosate. Um, the makers of glyphosate put out that glyphosate itself is incredibly safe. But it's actually when you combine it with all the other chemicals into that formulation, which might be called Roundup or Weedle or whatever, and I don't mind using trade names here, you actually are into an area that's not been regulated and we certainly don't know that it's safe. And in fact, we're probably told it's very toxic. It's regulated, but it doesn't go through the same level of tests. So the adjuvants or the added ingredients aren't required to go through the same level of testing. Ah. Um, and often they're, they're hidden and it's definitely not as transparent. But it's more than not just looking at what's in there. It's actually how these things things interact with one another. You know, these additives are put into the chemicals for various reasons. Um, it, it might be to make them more sticky or it might be to increase the uptake. So then those are the intended consequences of those ad additives. But actually, there's also the unintended consequences of how they interact with the chemicals or how they affect the non-target organisms as well. Mm. And then the other thing that I'm particularly worried about is we're talking about individual chemicals or individual formulations there. But actually, there's also an, a, a cocktail effect, what's known as the cocktail effect, of where chemicals interact with one another and their effect can be magnified. So one chemical is assessed on its impact on the target organisms, but when it's actually used, it can be used alongside other chemicals. So you could have an insecticide being applied at the same time or within a few days of a fungicide. And those two things, those two chemicals may well interact or could interact, causing the effect of those chemicals to be greater on the target organism or on non-target organisms. And you're saying that the regulatory process doesn't look into this cocktail effect? It is completely unable to look into this cocktail oh, effect. This is terrifying, isn't it? Because we know how often, well, it's well reported how often a farmer will spray his field throughout the growing season. And it can be herbicides, growth enhancers, growth retardants, fungicides, whatever. I mean, it is very worrying that they're all mixing together. In this. I think cocktail is too nice a word. I would call it a toxic soup. <laughs> That's a very good analogy. And, and there's so many chemicals that the actual number of possible interactions, possible cocktails, possible mixtures is, is impossible to, to model or assess. So um, that's incredibly worrying. And then that's at the use phase. But then when we move through to the consumer phase, so you can buy an apple, that apple may have been sprayed by, you know, half a dozen different pesticides. Um, you know, around a third of the fresh fruit that's sold in UK supermarkets has got more than one pesticide residue on it. But you don't just eat an apple. You know, if you're having a fruit cocktail, you've got an apple, you've got a pear, you've got a mandarin, you've got whatever in there. And if all of those have got two or three or four or five different pesticides in them, who knows what, what, what yes. the number of pesticides are going to be? Uh, yes, and also, I suppose the other thing that's worrying is you're eating apples over a lifetime. So, again, <laughs> we don't know the longitudinal effect, do we? What the effect this is having on our bodies? 
It is. I mean, it's what's known as the chronic effect. It's the long-term exposure effect. There's a big lag in the impact of some of these more problematic long-term health impacts, whether that's cancer, whether it's some sort of neurological disease like Parkinson's. A dose early on or exposure early on can take many years before it manifests itself in an outcome. And that's one of the big problems when trying to model the impact of pesticides on health is that you know, you can be exposed over a period of time and then the results aren't shown for many, many years. And during your lifetime, you'll be exposed to many, many different chemical stresses, uh, whether it's air pollution, trying to pull out the impact of pesticides from all of those various other contaminants is nigh on impossible in epidemiological terms. So it's it's incredibly worrying. That's why we need to have a much take a much more precautionary approach to the way that we regulate pesticides. Yeah. And and what I feel is also important is I don't want, you know, everyone to point the finger of blame at farmers. Farmers are working in a loaded system, really. They're under pressure from supermarkets. They're under pressure from from seed suppliers. And they get their advice from agronomists who are often tied to pesticide suppliers. They're really in a tough place. And what we need to do is shift our policy environment and provide support from farmers who every farmer that I've met personally wants to do the right thing. In a way, you know, that's good news because we can do something quite easily and quite quickly. Oh, I love Uh, your optimism. (laughs) I try to be optimistic. But if we decided to tomorrow, we could ban a whole range of pesticides. We could switch away to different types of farming models. But if we wanted to completely grow a lot more trees, grow a lot more hedgerows, that's something that's going to take years and years to, to put in place. But if we wanted to tomorrow, we could provide greater support to farmers to switch away from pesticides. We could provide greater incentives to help them adapt. We could provide more training. All of the tools are there and we could switch pretty rapidly. That's really interesting to hear. I mean, I'd just like to see us do a lot more to help farmers do without pesticides in the first place. Um, than rely on just simply pumping more and more different types of pesticides into onto our fields and into our diets as we go forward. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good, very good point. And I think also for the poor listener who's now possibly munching an apple and has, has stopped, <laughs> I think probably if you can reduce the amount of pesticide intake it would help. And obviously, being an organic gardening podcast, this is one of the obvious ways to do it is to within your own plot to grow organically and not use these toxic chemicals which are involved in, in pesticides, herbicides, whatever you call them. Absolutely. And I think your organic growers will know from their own experience that when you try and manage pests, it's a suite of techniques. It's a collection of approaches to help to manage press. You can't just manage the press with one magic silver bullet. They don't exist. What you have to do is you have to, you know, do some spacing, you have to do rotations, you have to, you know, do physical and manual weeding and brush off your, your pests. There's all sorts of different things. One tool does not work. It's a it's a collection of You're absolutely right, Keith. And I think the other thing is for the organic gardener is recognizing that what we gaily call a pest is actually an insect or a creature that's part of the natural life forms within your growing plot. So if you're worried about aphids, for instance, Just remember that the blue tit who's nesting maybe nearby needs those aphids to feed its babies. So there's a whole chain of of wildlife within your growing area that if you decide you're going to get rid of some of that chain, you are affecting everything else down the line. You're absolutely right. What you want to achieve is a balance for pests versus beneficial insects and if you use if you intervene with chemicals what typically happens is you disrupt that ecosystem and you disrupt that balance yeah. uh, and it takes quite a while for for the natural process to to get back in sync and get back in balance typically pest species like aphids for example will have a much quicker life cycle than than a, than a beneficial insect species like say a, a ladybird so if you go out and you destroy all the beneficial insects and all the pest insects yes you'll have a nice clean plot with no pests but pretty quickly the pests will come back bigger and stronger and faster 
than the beneficial insects, which would take, which would keep them in check. So, mm. um, Keith, I'm going to ask you about your own garden in a minute because I know you're a keen gardener yourself. But let's go back to Pan, and you say here in the UK there's a lot of advocacy. Are there any particular campaigns that you want to mention? Well, actually, at the moment, you know, we are facing a once-in-a-lifetime change in the way that uh, our food could be grown in the future. The decisions that are being made at the moment will uh, affect the way that food is grown in the UK for the next generation. We have left the EU and we are putting in place our own system. And it's really important that when we do that, we at least keep our standards for agricultural production, for our for environmental protection, for food safety, at the same level they they existed at now. We can't see any slipping or sliding away from those standards. Okay, that's one of the things that we're working forward now. And then we have the agriculture bill and the environment bill, which are supporting that as well. Our big priorities is we want to see a statutory target to reduce pesticide use in the UK. These exist in other countries, like in Denmark, and that has driven a reduction in pesticide use. So if other countries can do it, we should be taking hold of our future and setting a target to reduce pesticide use. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not just politicians, it's also supermarkets. Let's mm. face it, these are incredibly powerful organisations. They have supply chains of hundreds of thousands. A, a single decision by one of the major supermarkets can have a massive impact on uh, on how a farmer has to grow their food. If a far, if there's only one demand for one crop from a supermarket, it really constrains the amount of rotations that a farmer can put in. Mm. And we need to try and help get supermarkets to say, hey, we'd like to sell more legumes from the UK to allow cereal farmers put another to break their rotations. It's we need a lot more joined up thinking from all of the actors in, in our food system. It's not just writing to your MP, but it's also maybe writing to your, your supermarket where you regularly shop. Absolutely. And PAN has a supermarket campaign running at the moment. We've taken a look at all of the pesticide policies of the big supermarkets around the UK. And we found that some are OK or some. Well, some are better than others, I think, is the easiest way to say it. And we would like to see all of them do better. And we would definitely like to see some of the laggards get up to doing what some of the best are doing, because if one supermarket can do it, then all of them should be able to do it. But they're not going to do it unless their customers tell them they, they want them to do it. Keith, let me just ask a little bit about you, if I may. What brought you to Pan? Well, I, I was brought up in a rural environment. I was brought up in Pembrokeshire in West Wales. Um, I was surrounded by fields and farms. And I suppose that really kickstarted my love of the environment and love of the natural world. And I really have a passion for farming and farming communities and the environment. And I think there's no reason why they they can't work in harmony, uh, but we need to find ways to make it easier. So my history, my personal history comes from there. But over the years, I, I, that took me into an a, environmental career, if you like. And, and following uh, a, an environmental degree, I took on some postgraduate studies looking at, um, at farming communities in the developing world. And that's where I first came across the real scary way that pesticides are used um, around the world. Because it's less regulated or because? For, for so many different reasons. First of all, it's much less regulated. The regulatory capacity in, in many of the um, developing countries is much lower. I mean, for example, the average number of pesticide regulators um, in, in Africa is around three in each country. You know, I think Sweden's got about 400. Uh, I could be wrong, but it's definitely in the hundreds. Oh, wow. And so you can see there's a huge imbalance in the actual capacity to regulate pesticides. The other thing is a lot of the pesticides that are used are older. They're, they're the really dangerous things that have been banned in the UK. And is it decades. true that the UK still exports things that we know are banned for use here, but we export for use elsewhere in the world? Shamefully, yes. There are chemicals produced in the UK that have been banned in the UK for years. And like they Paraquat? Be, which have been banned because they are deadly. 
they are really, really dangerous chemicals. And if they are dangerous in the UK, then they are also dangerous in other countries. So it's complete double standards and hypocrisy for the UK to allow pesticides to be produced in this country and exported to other countries. It is shameful. It is shameful. So other reasons why it's it's a problem is is around awareness, education, uh, even as much as literacy and and also the way that they're used. I mean, often pesticides are repackaged into other containers, drinks bottles with no instructions on them. You don't know what you're spraying. So it's, it's a perfect storm. And the result is that literally, literally hundreds of thousands of people in the developing world die from acute pesticide poisoning every year. This is a hidden health crisis. And that's why around half of what Pan UK does is is in the developing world. We have programs at the moment in Africa. We do that through a mix of uh, training. We have what's called um, farmer field schools where we work with smallholder farmers to train them in organic techniques, um, the techniques that many of your listeners will be aware of around uh, rotations, around identifying beneficial insects, knowing what is a pest, what isn't a pest. And the result is that our farmers tend to get higher yields. They definitely get higher incomes than their conventional neighbours because pesticides are a pretty heavy cost. And they do better. And obviously, they don't get poisoned. So, Keith, some of what you've said has been really quite shocking. But also, I quite like your optimism. The fact that we can make changes, we can support farmers to move away from these toxic chemicals. Do you yourself feel positive? Do you feel optimistic? So I'm optimistic in that I think I believe in the power of 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 human nature and and the goodness of human beings, Paul. Um, I don't think that there is um, a real desire uh, among farmers and farming communities to trash their environments or to uh, spray poisons willy-nilly around everywhere. But I'm pretty pessimistic because I've also seen the power of wealth and capital to push forward things that are not necessarily in the best interest of, of everybody. And we need to fight very hard for the future that we want to see. I think the system is loaded against them, and I think we now have an opportunity to change that system. But we need your help to do that. Um, PAN is a relatively, well, a very small NGO, uh, and we're a small voice uh, um, shouting against some very, very big and powerful vested interests. Can our listeners help? Can they become a member of PAN? Are you a membership organisation? We're not a membership organisation. However, I invite you to visit our website, which is www.pan-uk.org. And we have campaigns running and we would really welcome support from from, uh, your listeners to send letters to to their MPs and let them know that these are things that are important to them. Let's face it, politicians only sit up and listen when people tell them they're important. Uh, And if we don't let them know that we care about our environment, we care about the way our food is grown, then they're just going to listen to the the loudest and the wealthiest groups who are talking to them. So please support our, our campaigns to persuade policymakers. I suspect anyone who's listening to this would like to join you in that fight. Thank you very much, Keith. Thanks, Sarah. Well, we've come to the end of this month's podcast. Next month, Chris meets Tony Kirkham, head of arboriculture at Kew Gardens. I'm really looking forward to hearing this amazing botanist and about his work amongst some of the greatest trees in the world. Thank you for listening. Enjoy your autumn growing and gardening wherever you are. Our thanks to Kevin McLeod for providing the music.